This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Seven Little Australians by Ethel Turner. Chapter 1 Chiefly Descriptive. Before you start this story, I should like to give you just a word of warning. If you imagine you are going to read of model children with, perhaps, a naughtily inclined one to point a moral, you had better lay down the book immediately and betake yourself to Sandford and Merton, or similar standard juvenile works. Not one of the seven is really good, for the very excellent reason that Australian children never are. In England and America, and Africa and Asia, the little folks may be paragons of virtue. I know little about them. But in Australia, a model child is, I say it not without thankfulness, an unknown quantity. It may be that the miasmas of naughtiness develop best in the sunny brilliancy of our atmosphere. It may be that the land and the people are young-hearted together, and the children's spirits not crushed and saddened by the shadow of long years' sorrowful history. There is a lurking sparkle of joyousness and rebellion and mischief in nature here, and therefore in children. Often the light grows dull and the bright colouring fades to neutral tints in the dust and heat of the day, but when it survives play-days and school-days, circumstances alone determine whether the electric sparkle shall go to play will-o'-the-wisp with the larrikin type, or warm the breasts of the spirited, single-hearted, loyal ones who alone can advance Australia. Enough of such talk. Let me tell you about my seven select spirits. They are having nursery tea in the present moment with a minimum of comfort and a maximum of noise, so if you can bear a deafening babel of voices and an unmusical clitter-clatter of crockery, I will take you inside the room and introduce them to you. Nursery tea is more an English institution than an Australian one. There is a kind of bon camaraderie feeling between parents and young folks here, and an utter absence of veneration on the part of the latter. So even in the most wealthy families it seldom happens that the parents dine in solemn state alone while the children are having a simple tea in another room. They all assemble around the same board and the young ones partake of the same dishes and sustain their parts in the conversation right nobly. But given a very particular and rather irritable father and seven children with excellent lungs and tireless tongues, what could you do but give them separate rooms to take their meals in? Captain Woolcott, the father, in addition to this division, had had thick felt put over the swing door upstairs, but the noise used to float down to the dining room in cheerful, unconcerned manner despite it. It was a nursery without a nurse too, so that partly accounted for it. Meg, the eldest, was only sixteen and could not be expected to be much of a disciplinarian, and the slatternly but good-natured girl who was supposed to combine the duties of nursery-maid and housemaid had so much to do in her second capacity that the first suffered considerably. She used to lay the nursery meals when none of the little girls could be found to help her, and bundle on the clothes of the two youngest in the morning. But beyond that the seven had to manage for themselves. The mother, you ask? Oh, she was only twenty, just a lovely laughing-faced girl whom they all adored, and who was very little steadier and very little more of a housekeeper than Meg. Only the youngest of the brood was hers, but she seemed just as fond of the other six as of it, and treated it more as if it were a very entertaining kitten than a real live baby and her very own. Indeed, at Miss Rule, that is the name their house always went by, though I believe there was a different one painted above the balcony, that baby seemed a gigantic joke to everyone. The captain generally laughed when he saw it, tossed it in the air, and then asked someone to take it quickly. The children dragged it all over the country with them, dropped it countless times, forgot its police on wet days, 
muffled it up when it was hot, gave it the most astounding things to eat, and yet it was, if the healthiest, prettiest and most sunshiny baby that ever sucked a wee fat thumb. It was never called Baby, either. That was the special name of the next youngest. Captain Woolcott had said, "'Hello, is this the General?' when the little red, staring-eyed morsel had been put into his arms, and the name had come into daily use, though I believe at the christening service the curate did say something about Francis Rupert Bernard Woolcott. Baby was four, and was a little soft fat thing with pretty cuddlesome ways, great smiling eyes, and lips very kissable when they were free from jam. She had a weakness, however, for making the general cry, or she would have been really almost a model child. Innumerable times she had been found pressing its poor little chest to make it squeak, and even pinching its tiny arms or pulling its innocent nose, just for the strange pleasure of hearing the yells of despair it instantly set up. Captain Woolcott ascribed the peculiar tendency to the fact that the child had once had a dropsical-looking woolly lamb, from which the utmost pressure would only elicit the faintest possible squeak. He said it was only natural that now she had something so amenable to squeezing she should want to utilise it. Bunty was six and was fat and very lazy. He hated scouting at cricket. He loathed the very name of a paper chase. And as for running an errand, why, before anyone could finish saying something was wanted, he would have utterly disappeared. He was rather small for his age and I don't think had ever been seen with a clean face. Even at church, though the immediate front turn to the minister might be passable, the people in the next pews had always an uninterrupted view of the black rim where washing operations had left off. The next on the list, I am going from youngest to oldest, you see, was the show Woolcott, as Pip the eldest boy used to say. You have seen those exquisite child angel faces on Raphael Tuck's Christmas cards? I think the artist must just have dreamed of Nell, and then reproduced the vision imperfectly. She was ten, and had a little fairy-like figure, gold hair clustering in wonderful waves and curls around her face, soft hazel eyes and a little rosebud of a mouth. She was not conceited either, her family took care of that. Pip would have nipped such a weakness very sternly in its earliest bud. But in some way, if there was a pretty ribbon to spare or a breadth of bright material, just enough for one little frock, it fell as a matter of course to her. Judy was only three years older, but was the greatest contrast imaginable. Nellie used to move rather slowly about, and would have made a picture in any attitude. Judy, I think, was never seen to walk, and seldom look picturesque. If she did not dash madly to the place she wished to get to, she would progress by a series of jumps, bounds, and odd little skips. She was very thin, as people generally are who have quicksilver instead of blood in their veins. She had a small, eager, freckled face, with very bright dark eyes, a small determined mouth and a mane of untidy curly dark hair that was the trial of her life. Without doubt she was the worst of the seven, probably because she was the cleverest. Her brilliant inventive powers plunged them all into ceaseless scrapes, and though she often bore the brunt of the blame with equanimity, they used to turn round, not infrequently, and upbraid her for suggesting the mischief. She had been christened Helen, which in no way accounts for Judy, but then nicknames are rather unaccountable things sometimes, are they not? Bunty said it was because she was always popping and jerking herself about like the celebrated wife of Punch, and there really is something in that. Her other name, Fizz, is easier to understand. Pip used to say he never yet had seen the ginger ale that effervesced and bubbled and made the noise that Judy did. I haven't introduced you to Pip yet, have I? He was a little like Judy, only handsomer and taller, 
and he was fourteen, and had as good an opinion of himself, and as poor a one of girls, as boys of that age generally have. Meg was the oldest of the family, and had a long, fair plait that Bunty used to delight in pulling, a sweet, rather dreamy face, and a powdering of pretty freckles that occasioned her much tribulation of spirit. It was generally believed in the family that she wrote poetry and stories, and even kept a diary, but no one had ever seen a vestige of her papers, she kept them so carefully locked up in her old tin hat-box. Their father, had you asked them, they would all have replied with considerable pride was a military man, and much from home. He did not understand children at all, and was always grumbling at the noise they made and the money they cost. Still, I think he was rather proud of Pip, and sometimes if Nellie were prettily dressed he would take her out with him in his dog-cart. He had offered to send the six of them to boarding-school when he brought home his young girl-wife, but she would not hear of it. At first they had tried living in the barracks, but after a time everyone in the officers' quarters rose in revolt at the pranks of those graceless children, so Captain Woolcott took a house some distance up the Parramatta River, and in considerable bitterness of spirit removed his family there. They liked the change immensely, for there was a big wilderness of a garden, two or three paddocks, numberless sheds for hide-and-seek, and best of all the water. Their father kept three beautiful horses, one at the barracks, and a hunter and a good hack at Misrule. So, to make up, the children, not that they cared in the slightest, went about in shabby, out-at-elbow clothes and much-worn boots. They were taught, all but Pip, who went to the grammar school, by a very third-class daily governess, who lived in mortal fear of her ignorance being found out by her pupils. As a matter of fact, they had found her out long ago, as children will, but it suited them very well not to be pushed on and made to work, so they kept the fact religiously to themselves. End of chapter 1 Chapter 2 Fowl for Dinner Oh, don't the days seem lank and long when all goes right and nothing wrong, and isn't your life extremely flat, with nothing whatever to grumble at? I hope you are not quite deafened yet, for though I have got through the introductions, tea is not nearly finished, so we must stay in the nursery a little longer. All the time I have been talking, Pip has been grumbling at the lack of good things. The table was not very tempting, certainly. The cloth looked as if it had been flung on, the china was much chipped and battered, the tea was very weak and there was nothing to eat but great thick slices of bread and butter. Still it was the usual tea, and everyone seemed surprised at Pip's outburst. "'My father and Esther,' they all called their young stepmother by her Christian name, "'are having roast fowl, three vegetables and four kinds of pudding,' he said angrily. "'It isn't fair. But we had dinner at one o'clock, Pip, and yours is saved as usual,' said Meg, pouring out tea with a lavish allowance of hot water and sugar." "'Boiled mutton and carrots and rice pudding,' returned her brother witheringly. "'Why shouldn't we have roast fowl and custard and things?' "'Yes, why shouldn't we?' echoed little greedy Bunty, his eyes lighting up. "'What a lot it would take for all of us,' said Meg, cheerfully attacking the bread-loaf. "'We're only children. Let us be thankful for this nice thick bread and this abundance of melting butter,' said Judy in a good little tone." Pip pushed his chair back from the table. "'I'm going down to ask for some roast fowl,' he said, with a look of determination in his eyes. "'I can't forget the smell of it, and they'd got a lot on the table. I peeped in the door.' He took up his plate and proceeded downstairs, returning presently, to the surprise of everyone, with quite a large portion on his plate. 
He couldn't very well refuse, he chuckled. Colonel Bryant is there, but he looked a bit mad. Here, Fizz, I'll go your halves. Judy pushed up her plate eagerly at this unusually magnanimous offer and received a very small division, a fifth part, perhaps, with great gratitude. I just love fowl, said Nell longingly. I've a great mind to go down and ask for a wing. I believe he'd give it to me. These disrespectful children, as I am afraid you will have noticed, always alluded to their father as he. Nell took up another plate and departed slowly to the lower regions. She followed into the dining-room at the heels of the housemaid and stood by the side of her father, her plate well behind her. "'Well, my little maid, won't you shake hands with me? What is your name?' said Colonel Bryant, tapping her cheek playfully. Nell looked up with shy, lovely eyes. "'Eleanor Wolcott, but they call me Nell,' she said, holding out her left hand since her right was occupied with the plate. "'What a little barbarian you are, Nell,' laughed her father, but he gave her a quick, annoyed glance. "'Where is your right hand?' She drew it slowly from behind and held out the cracked old plate. "'I thought perhaps you would give me some fowl, too,' she said. "'Just a leg or a wing or a bit of breast would do.' The captain's brow darkened. "'What is the meaning of this? Pip has just been to me, too. Have you nothing to eat in the nursery?' Oh, only bread and butter, very thick, sighed Nellie. Esther suppressed a smile with difficulty. But you had dinner, all of you, at one o'clock. Boiled mutton and carrots and rice pudding, said Nell mournfully. Captain Woolcott severed a leg almost savagely and put it on her plate. Now run away, I don't know what has possessed you two tonight. Nellie reached the door, then turned back. Oh, if you would just give me a wing for poor Meg... Judy had some of Pip's, but Meg hasn't any, she said, with a beautiful look of distress that quite touched Colonel Bryant. Her father bit his lip, hacked off a wing in ominous silence, and put it upon her plate. Now run away, and don't let me have any more of this nonsense, dear. The last word was a terrible effort. Nell's appearance with the two portions of fowl was hailed with uproarious applause in the nursery. Meg was delighted with her share, cut a piece off for baby, and the meal went on merrily. "'Where's Bunty?' said Nell, pausing suddenly with a very clean drumstick in her fingers. "'Because I hope he hasn't gone too. Some way I don't think Father was very pleased, especially as that man was there.' But that small youth had done so, and returned presently crestfallen. "'He wouldn't give me any. He told me to go away, and the man laughed, and Esther said we were very naughty.' I got some feathered potatoes, though, from the table outside the door. He opened his dirty little hands and dropped the uninviting feathered delicacy out upon the cloth. Bunty, you're a pig, sighed Meg, looking up from her book. She always read at the table, and this particular story was about some very refined, elegant girls. Pig yourself! All of you have had fowl but me, you greedy things, retorted Bunty fiercely, and eating his potato very fast. "'No, the General hasn't,' said Judy, and the old mischief-light sprang up suddenly into her dark eyes. "'Now, Judy,' said Meg warningly, she knew too well what that particular sparkle meant. "'I'm not going to hurt you, you dear old thing,' said Miss Judy, dancing down the room and bestowing a pat on her sister's fair head as she passed. "'It's only the General, who's after having a bit of fun.' She lifted him up out of the high chair where he had been sitting, drumming on the table with a spoon and eating sugar in the intervals. 
"'It's real action you're going for to see, General,' she said, dancing to the door with him. "'Oh, Judy, what are you going to do?' said Meg entreatingly. "'Juju!' crowed the General, leaping almost out of Judy's arms and scenting fun with the instinct of a veteran. Down the passage they went, the other five behind to watch proceedings. Judy sat down with him on the last step. "'Boy want chuck-chuck? Pretty chuck-chuck?' she said insidiously. "'Chuck-chuck! Chuck-a-chuck!' he gurgled, looking all around for his favourite friends. "'Dad got lots, all this many,' said Judy, opening her arms very wide to denote the number in her father's possession. "'Boydy, go get em. "'Chuck-chuck!' crowed the general delightedly, and struggling to his feet. "'Fine chuck-chuck!' "'In there,' whispered Judy, giving him a gentle push into the half-open dining-room door. "'Ask Dad.' Right across the room the baby tottered on fat, unsteady little legs. "'Are all the children possessed tonight, Esther?' said the captain, as his youngest son clutched wildly at his leg and tried to climb up it. He looked down into the little dirty, dimpling face. "'Well, General, and to what do we owe the honour of your presence?' "'Chuck-chuck-chuck-a-chuck-chuck-chuck-chuck,' said the general, going down promptly upon all fours to seek for the feathered darlings Judy had said were here. But Esther gathered up the dear, dirty-faced young rascal and bore him struggling out of the room. At the foot of the stairs she nearly stumbled over the rest of the family. "'Oh, you scamps, you bad, wicked imps,' she said, reaching out to box all their ears and, of course, failing." She sat down on the bottom stair to laugh for a second. Then she handed the general to Pip. "'Tomorrow,' she said, standing up and hastily smoothing the rich hair that the general's hands had clutched gleefully, "'tomorrow I shall beat every one of you with the broomstick.' They watched the train of her yellow silk dress disappear into the dining-room again and returned slowly to the nursery and their interrupted tea. End of chapter 2